Welcome to the Alex Kennedy Podcast. This is episode number three. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a rating and review if you have a second. Today, I'm joined by Ben Golliver of the Washington Post, who writes the Post Up newsletter and hosts the Greatest of All Talk podcast. He also has an upcoming book on his experience covering the NBA in the bubble called Bubble Ball. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben Golliver. Ben, thanks for joining me. How are you? Oh, it's my pleasure, Alex. I'm doing well. You know, we're, we're entering the uh, conference final stage here pretty soon. Uh, you know, at, at the NBA bubble, it's been a long run, but it's nice to know that like every single game matters so much that the intensity is ratcheted up. I'm sure you've noticed the defense has really turned up here over the last couple of weeks. We've got LeBron and the Lakers playing really well. We've got the Celtics, uh, you know, kind of living up to their potential. We've got the Miami Heat surprising everyone. We've got a big showdown between the Clippers and Nuggets to kind of determine that fourth seed. It's just a bunch going on. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited. It's a great time to be a basketball fan. I want to ask you, though, you've been in the bubble since the very beginning when this all, you know, when this all started. So what's been your experience in the bubble? Because we've heard from some, some players, LeBron James said that he's thought about leaving on a daily basis. Uh, Paul George talked about dealing with depression in the bubble. What's been your experience in the bubble? Well, it's very much a Groundhog Day lifestyle. I mean, every day feels like the same. You have this whole checklist of things you got to do as soon as you wake up, you know, Take your temperature, you know, take your uh, pulse ox reading, go get tested, make sure you've got your credential on, make sure you're wearing your mask. I mean, you've got all these things that you kind of have to just do every single day. And I think that that just accumulates and adds up. I think that was kind of what was getting to the players. And then, of course, you had that terrible news with Jacob Blake and that shooting. And I think that that was sort of what kind of pushed them over the edge a little bit in terms of some of those feelings they were describing, whether they just wanted to put the season on pause back in August, whether they wanted to, uh, just have some time to clear their their heads and and just step away from the the routine because you know for them it's uh you know every single day is pretty much the same you're hopping on a bus to uh to go to practice you're probably eating at some point with your teammates you're um, you know hopping on a bus to get to a game you're, you have to get on the bus to go back home after the game to shower at your ho- your own hotel room until recently they weren't able to see their families and I do think that's made a big difference for some guys in terms of their happiness level and, and just their personal life balance but um, look, two months is a long time, uh, and you know every day feels the same here. The weather is even similar. Alex, I know you're from Florida, so you're probably familiar with it, but you, know, you get these thunderstorms that kind of wipe out the afternoons every once in a while. You get these really hot and humid um, late mornings where it can be difficult to go outside to exercise. I mean, all of it, uh, there is that accumulation effect. But you know, for me, I've settled in pretty nicely. I'm just taking it, as they say, one day at a time. And to me, the hardest part is behind us because we went from 22 teams now down to five. We're going to be down from three gyms to start to just one arena um, here starting on on Thursday. And so our lives are simplifying. The schedules are starting to shorten. It's been a lot of late nights here. That's probably been the hardest part. But, uh, you know, it is getting a little bit easier, I think, compared to when we were just, you know, chasing all the, the Phoenix Suns story, for example, or trying to see what's going on with Zion Williamson. I think the craziest time of this entire bubble, frankly, was right at the start. What are some things that maybe fans wouldn't realize about the bubble? Are there any misconceptions or things that might surprise people about life in the bubble? Well, I think everybody saw the players come out of the gate real real hot with the, the golfing and the fishing and all the fun activities that they were doing you know, right at the beginning, and it almost made it feel like it was the summer camp, right? And I think as we've gone along and the playoffs have intensified, 
you know, seeing players around campus is much more rare now. It seems like they're much more focused and locked in. And I think you can actually notice it with some of their, their comments, too, after games. We saw so much early advocacy on behalf of the social justice issues. And if you look here the last week or so, uh, it's really just been all about basketball. I think that, you know, guys are starting to realize, hey, there's a title at stake here. It's not that far away. And, you know, when we were in early August, Labor Day felt like, you know, a million years into the future. But now we've passed Labor Day and you know, the finish line is in sight. So I think guys are really focusing in their, their minds on on the sport. And they're also, um, you know, just frankly, like kind of structuring their days around recovery and making sure that they're, you know, getting ready to to get into the conference finals. So I think some of the fun stuff, you know, all the goofy stuff that we saw back in July has really subsided. And now, you know, if you're walking around the campus, the people who you'll see usually is coaches who are just trying to get a, a mental break, right? So Eric Spolster or Brad Stevens might be walking around the loop that we have that goes around the campus just to get in some steps and to clear their mind. Uh, you know, I actually saw Michael Malone going on a very long and very intense bike ride before game seven last night to clear his head. Same thing with the Clippers coaches. They're doing the same thing, trying to, uh, you know, just take some of the pressure off after, you know, being up 3-1 and losing two straight. So, um, you know, you're still seeing the staffs and the, and the coaches trying to, you know, make, uh, you know, make full use of the bubble. But, you know, the, the players, you know, they're they're very invisible right now. I think they're sticking to themselves and, and trying to keep their, their, their minds locked in for these games. We saw during the seeding games and then in the early part of the postseason, you know, scoring was was up significantly. And uh, Vinny Delegro wrote an article for us at basketballnews.com about why that is and some of the different factors that might, you know, go into that. And basically talked about how the uh, depth perception is better. The courts are surrounded by black curtains, so it's a little bit easier for guys. There's no fans. Uh, you know, talked about how maybe the defense was affected by not having fans because, you know, they feed off the energy of the crowd. You know, how are some ways that the bubble and this environment has impacted the on-court product? Well, I agree with a lot of those explanations. The one big one that I would add is just the lack of travel because I even feel it. I mean, you know, during the playoffs, it's actually some of the toughest times physically on my body. And I don't even have to play, Alex. All I have to do is write, you know. But if you're staying up late, then you're waking up for early flights. So you're not quite getting enough sleep. Um, you know, you're probably eating you know, a little bit more junk food on the road as you're, you're going between stops. Um, it just it takes a big time toll, and you know sometimes I'm I feel like I'm a you know almost like a ghost or a zombie walking around during the playoffs in a normal year, flying from city to city to city. Now here, there's no travel whatsoever, and so you talk to the players, you talk to the coaches, you talk to the referees, and you talk to the writers. Everybody who's here in the bubble is actually kind of likes that, right? Because there's so, it's so much more efficient use of your time. You don't have to change time zones. You're going to sleep better and sleep a little bit more consistently. You can actually get onto a routine. Uh, and you also typically know what time the, the game times are going to start. You're not changing time zones, so you've got some consistency there too. I think all of that added up to combine and really help the offenses, especially early on. Um, so I think that that was a, you know, a big factor for the shooters. You know, certainly it helps for role players not to have to go into road gyms where everybody's screaming at them and maybe they don't quite have the confidence. But just to get into a nice rhythm where you know you're shooting every single, uh, every other night uh, in the exact same gym, same building, no distractions. I definitely think that helps. Um, you know, past that, I think the bubble atmosphere. You know, when guys were first acclimating to it, it still felt kind of like a pickup environment or an AAU environment. And so, if you go back to July, I mean, there was a lot of teams scoring 130, 135, and I think that in some cases it was just a lack of defensive intensity. Or maybe the, the best defensive teams were just sort of looking to work themselves into shape and and kind of you know didn't want to show off too much. 
if you look at these Eastern Conference finals, potentially between Miami and Boston, those are two really good, you know, defensive teams. They make awesome rotations. They're locked in. They're disciplined. They don't make a lot of mistakes. They fly around on the perimeter and all that stuff. So I don't think you're going to see quite the same level of scoring here in the conference finals. And by the way, same thing for the Lakers. I mean, look at how they clamped up James Harden and the Houston Rockets. I mean, those guys were struggling to even score 100 points against uh, the Lakers defense. And so I think it's it's really been a night and day type thing. I mean, we really started all offense early on, and now it's definitely become more balanced. For sure. You recently announced that you're writing a book called Bubble Ball, which will come out in May of 2021. I can't wait to read it, and I'm so happy for you. I think this is an amazing idea. I was telling you before we started recording, I think that's going to be so interesting. And again, you're one of the few people that's been there the entire time. So I'm sure you have tons of great stories, and you're going to do a fantastic job. So first of all, congratulations. But what kind of topics are you going to cover in the book, just to give people a taste of you know what they can expect? Well, my, my goal with this book is I just view 2020 as one of those big years in NBA history. You know, you go back and look at like 92 with the Dream Team or, you know, right around 1980 when Magic and Larry come or even 2003 when LeBron arrives on the scene. Like those are kind of like 10 post years for the NBA. And when you look at 2020, there's no question in my mind when we fast forward 30 years, people are going to look back and say this was a really important year for the sport. Um, obviously, you have the tragic news of Kobe Bryant. Um, you have even, you know, leading into 2020, the controversy with China, and then you have the uh, the coronavirus, which shuts the entire sport down and threatens the sport like it's really never been threatened before. Every year throughout the NBA's history, they've crowned a champion. This was the closest they've ever come. And, you know, knock on wood, they still have a month to go where they weren't going to be able to crown one. Right. So I think that you're talking about billions of lost revenue. You're talking about executives needing to put the sport back together and find a way to do it. You're finding, you know, superstar level players banding together uh, to, to sacrifice and come down to Disney World and, and carry out the playoffs and, and keep the sport going. I mean, all of that stuff is definitely going to be covered. There's kind of no question. But it's also going to be like a personal journey for me because I was at home, you know, just like everybody else, sad and a little bit depressed. There's no basketball. And then finally they say, hey, you know, they're going to restart this thing at Disney World. And it's like, oh, this is amazing. Well, what's this even going to be like? And so it's going to be sort of like a journey to another planet, right? You're going to follow along with me as I, I kind of immerse myself in the bubble and get used to all the rules, settle in um, to our daily routines, and then cover the entire playoffs. And I mean, you know me, Alex, I'm a basketball guy, so it's going to be heavy on the on the playoff talk. But uh, of course, the, the social justice hangs over this too. I was right there when the Milwaukee Bucks uh, you know, launched their protest, decided not to, to come out onto the court. Um, I was actually on a bus, a media bus last week when protesters stopped our bus in the middle of the street and protesting on behalf of a, a 22-year-old black man who was shot and killed um, here in Orlando, Florida, not too far away from the bubble. So I mean, there's going to be a lot of layers to this story for sure. Uh, but ultimately, it's also going to be a basketball story, too. Of who wins the title and why this title is going to mean, I think, a lot when we look back in history compared to you know just a typical year. Yeah, what was that day like when the Bucks decided to boycott their game? You know, was there a lot of confusion initially? Um, did you know what was happening? You know, what was it like kind of being there? Oh, it was crazy. So the night before, the Clippers had won by like 15, 20, 30 points. And um, Doc Rivers had given that speech. I'm sure you saw it about why, you know, why do black Americans love America so much if America doesn't love them yeah. back, right? And at that press conference, I started to ask him a couple questions like, hey, you know, what do you tell people who are thinking about boycotting or thinking about sitting out? Because remember, the Clippers had gone through that Donald Sterling potential boycott where they nearly didn't take the court for a playoff game five or six years ago. 
And he, he was um, you know, very candid with me saying, hey, I think my advice would be you guys should play. But at the very end, he said, look, if the players don't want to play, we're not going to play. And that was just kind of rattling around in my mind. So I wrote that story late Tuesday night and I woke up Wednesday and I thought, huh, you know, th- something could happen here. You know, it was a tense on campus. Guys were not happy. They were exhausted, like I mentioned earlier. And I have been following the Bucks, you know, pretty much the whole way through their playoff run because I viewed them as one of the top title contenders. So I actually went to their game and I'll be honest, not very many media members show up to the Bucks games here, uh, especially compared to like the Lakers or the Clippers. And they had one of the first games of that day. I want to say it was like uh, an early afternoon game. So there was only three or four writers actually at that game beforehand, like ready to go. I showed up normal. I got my computer set up uh, at my at my desk. I had my uh, iced tea. I had my uh, my bubble water all ready to go. You know, I'm, I'm just treating it like a normal game. And I, once I'm set up, I look up and I notice and there's only like 15 minutes left on the game clock. And what do you know? Orlando is the only team out there. And I'm thinking, huh, this is different. This is weird. And I start to put the pieces together. You know, Jacob Blake's in Wisconsin. The Bucks are from Wisconsin. You know, George Hill has already made some comments about should we be play- playing? And the wheels start to turn. So I look over to, um, you know, an NBA official, you know, a guy who would know these these kinds of things. And I said, so what's the deal here? If there's a forfeit, are we looking at a forfeit? Are we looking at a, a postponement or a delay? What are the official rules? And this is a guy who definitely knows very high up in the league. And he would, he just said, look, we have not been here before. I can't give you an answer to that question. We're going to have to see how this plays out. And he basically made it clear that it was going to be above his head. So at that point, I knew we were in a serious situation, right? I mean, there, there is no way where, um, you know, this guy's entire job is to kind of like help organize and, and run these games. If even he doesn't have an answer for me, um, then we're in, we're in uh, uncharted territory. So I went back uh, and just kind of moseyed around the back hallways. I was able to kind of peek into the Orlando locker room and noticed that they were um, standing up and really confused. They had actually left the court once the Bucks didn't show up. And so at that point, I was already just kind of tweeting in real time what was happening. You know, Bucks don't take the court. Um, it appears to be a protest of Jacob Blake. Um, and then at that point, also, we were just even writing stories. I mean, I was running around the back of that arena writing my story for the front page of the Post because we knew it was a huge deal. I was writing it on my phone and sending it into my editor. We wound up sitting back there in the hallway for about three hours waiting for them to come out. Alex, the weirdest detail, they were in the locker room for so long that multiple players had to go to the bathroom, but there was no bathroom in the locker room. So they actually had to come out of that locker room sanctum, walk by the media reporters to use the bathroom, and then go and walk back into the locker room and finish their conversations. Obviously, when they were doing that, they didn't want to have any interaction with us. Guys weren't making eye contact. They weren't telling us what they were up to at all. No smiles. And even though a lot of the reporters who were there by that point knew these players very well, it was kind of a very solemn and, and private moment. So you know, that was just you know strange to, to add on top of everything. But they eventually came out and gave their statement. Um, I don't think there was a lot of surprise about their statement. They, they really struck the chords that I think a lot of people expected. And then once they had made that statement, you saw it just ricochet all over the different sports, you know, from from baseball, uh, you know, to tennis and and almost WNBA, everything in between. You know, different different teams decided to take similar actions and sit their games out that night. So it was a very chaotic scene. But I'll never forget, you know, setting up my desk and and looking up and saying, "Wait a minute, there's only one team." You know, <laughs> it's the first time I've ever had that happen in my 13 years of covering the NBA. 
Yeah, that's incredible too that, you know, there weren't a lot of media members there. So for your book, I mean, that's, that's great for you. The fact that you were one of the few people that can tell that whole story that you were there the entire time. So I'm really excited. Well, it was, yeah, it was funny too, because like we were back there in the hallway and like every half an hour they run buses to the arenas, right? So every half an hour, like on the clock, there'd be a couple more media members who had been seeing the tweets who would decide, Hey, we got to get out there and figure out what's happening, right? So the Bucks took so long to decide that almost every writer who was uh, who's here in the bubble was there by the end of it. Um, and, you know, we wound up being a pretty big, um, you know, a pretty big collection. Uh, it's funny. Everybody works on their own schedule here. So you never quite see everyone all at the same time. I mean, probably the the most dense and, and condensed it gets would be at Lakers games just because of the amount of attention they attract. But I think that was probably the biggest collection of media all in one place at one time here uh, was when the Bucks finally gave their speech. For sure. Well, I'm really excited for Bubble Ball. I can't wait to read it in May of 2021. I think it's going to be fantastic. And I'm excited for you. I know it's your first book. Are you? I, I've always wanted to write a book. I talked about this in this podcast. I've always wanted to write a book, but it seems so daunting. And I think finding the topic is is such a big thing. You know, you want it to be something that appeals to a lot of people and that you're really interested in. So I think you you, you have a great topic here for sure. And, and it's going to be really fun to, to be able to write it. But what's your writing process? I mean, what are you expecting? I know you haven't started working on it just yet, but what's your writing process going to be? Well, I'm right there with you. Finding the topic was the hardest part. I had kind of wanted to write a book for a while too. And the one that I had always kind of come back to was like the, the Odin versus Durant decision, because that's how I got my start writing. And I just kind of wondered, well, What's the audience really for that? Obviously, a lot of people in Portland care about that decision. A lot of people where you know Durant's from and where Odin's are from probably are, are interested in that. But is that one that really kind of transcends transcends the sport? And um, so that kind of was always you know batting around in the back of my head. And then this bubble ball thing, it just really fell in my lap. To be honest, I mean, once I got here, I realized how strange and unique and surreal this entire experience would be. And I also realized there was a pretty good chance they wouldn't do it again if they could avoid it, right? Like, obviously, the NBA wants to be back into their arenas as quickly as possible. And so this could be the type of thing where 20 years from now, people are like, wait a minute, what? They played at Disney World? Like, how did that even happen? <clears throat> and I just kept thinking, like, if I was a kid, you know, and this had happened in, like, 1979, I mean, I would want to read that book so badly, right? Just, like, tell me every little detail. What's it about? So I think from that standpoint, um, yeah, that, that's kind of what got me interested in, in doing it. And I was really lucky that Ab Abrams Press kind of saw the vision and, and realized this was something that should be documented. Um, you know, in terms of my process, obviously, I'm writing every single day here for The Washington Post, and I'm recording podcasts almost every single day. So I'm going to have extensive notes to rely on. Um, and I'm jotting stuff down in addition every once in a while here and there just about like what I'm thinking but I think that that's really going to be the sort of the basis uh, for what the book will be is just my, my personal recollections, whether I express it in stories, observations, um, you know, in, in features, uh, but also, you know, just on podcasts as well, where, you know, sometimes you're going through the moods that you're talking about up and down and you want to capture that stuff, too. So that's going to sort of be the basis, I think, for my my reporting and my notes. And I'm going to start writing it as soon as the finals are over. And my hope is to have it done by January. So it's going to be a real rush for sure. Um, obviously there's going to be an NBA off season to kind of deal with as well. But, uh, I think right now it's almost out of sight, out of mind, and there's going to be plenty of time for that once the season ends. One debate that we've been having at basketballnews.com, you know, among our staff is whether or not the bubble 
will lead to the next super team. You know, we see players from different teams hanging out. Uh, there's been, you know, guys going out to get dinner together and, and we've seen pictures of that. Um, but at the same time, you have their entire organizations all in the bubble. So I've seen some people compare it to, oh, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh hanging out with Team USA. And that's how they got closer and ultimately decided to team up. You know, that that's something that, you know, we've obviously, we've obviously heard. But then there's, you know, if, if the... Cavaliers organization was there and the Toronto Raptors organization was there with Team USA, those guys probably wouldn't have hung out as much and it would be a little bit different. So I guess I I see both sides of it. I could see this bubble leading to the next super team where maybe guys are hanging out, interacting more, and that kind of plants a seed. Or, you know, even with, you know, we saw with Kevin Durant, one thing that led to him going to the Golden State Warriors is he saw how much fun they were having as a team. That's something that he commented on, just, you know, being around them and seeing how close they were and, and how much fun they were having. That is one thing that I could see too, where if you're, if you're spending time around these teams and you see, oh, th- those guys really get, you know, get along well and, and they have a lot of fun together, maybe that influences a player who's making a decision. But I also think it's kind of tough for these guys to hang out when your entire organization is there. You know, there were some rumors about different players possibly hanging out with other teams too much and their teams getting concerned and things like that. So I guess, which side do you fall on? Do you think that the bubble will lead to or contribute to the next super team forming? Well, I'd say, first of all, it's very tricky for me to have firsthand uh, uh, access to those kinds of like, you know, interactions between teams because that is one area that we're absolutely not allowed to go to is the player hotel. So basically as media members here, we're almost stuck watching the same social media videos as you are for that kind of stuff or, or, or anybody else's um, for that matter. But just in general, in theory, I absolutely think this is going to be a breeding ground for team ups or super teams. No, no question about it in part because of what you said about how um, Durant looked at the Warriors and saw that they were having fun. I just think that, you know, as you know, in the NBA, there's haves and have nots, right? And if you're on a team that just consistently doesn't make the playoffs or maybe you're not going in the right direction, maybe you don't have a, a really well-recognized coach, maybe you don't have a really strong team culture, maybe your your organization's a little bit more of a collection of individuals rather than a true team, you're going to see firsthand here in the bubble what it looks like to be part of a winning organization, what it uh, is, is part of, you know, being part of a championship organization, whether it's the Toronto Raptors, um, whether it's how LeBron carries himself with the Lakers. And you can even see it play out in the gyms. You know, some of these teams were just a lot more loud and vocal and together than other teams. You know, some of these teams, when they're coming out here, you know, their, their benches are just sitting silent as they're getting beat in some of those seating round games. Right. And I think it's impossible not to want to look over across the way and say, huh, what would life be like if I played with those guys? Um, and of, of course, there's plenty of time for guys to cultivate relationships. And these NBA players are super smart now. They, know, I mean, about team building specifically, they know how to manipulate the salary cap. They know how to kind of make trades work. They know how to clear uh, cap space to bring a guy in. And you know, it is a, a fraternity ultimately, where you know these guys already know each other's backgrounds. They've been watching each other since AAU and everything else. So to me, I think it's inevitable. And I think that, you know, some of the teams that actually got brought in, you know, like uh, they they brought 22 rather than 16. I mean, there's some pretty good players on some of those teams, whether it's like De'Aaron Fox or Devin Booker or, uh, you know, whoever else you want to mention on some of those uh, those teams that weren't part of the the playoff uh, format, you know, the the top 16. And those guys are going to be like just forced to confront, like, what could life be like day after day after day for, you know, almost two months when they were down here. Uh, if I was those teams' uh, executives, I'd be a little bit nervous. I'd definitely be trying to play defense to make sure they're not hanging out too much with uh, with some of those top teams. 
Yeah, that makes sense. You know, some of these guys hang out in the off season too, or at different training sites and things like that. So, I mean, I could definitely see conversations that potentially started in the bubble or relationships that maybe got, you know, guys got closer in the bubble. All of a sudden now, you know, they're working out together and getting even closer. And yeah, maybe that does lead to something. I did an article recently, a roundtable article where I talked to, you know, different media members and asked them each you know, which franchise will assemble the next super team and kind of tried to predict it. Uh, the most popular answer was Miami. Dallas was in second. And then Brooklyn and Golden State also received votes. Uh, what do you, if you have, I mean, we hear the rumors about Giannis Antetokounmpo. We hear the Victor Oladipo stuff when it comes to Miami. Um, you know, I think with Dallas, it was more just instead of actual rumors linking them to a certain player, it's more just their situation and people wanting to play with Luca and Porzingis and how attractive that situation is. If you had to predict, which franchise do you think could assemble the next super team? Well, I like that Dallas idea a lot. You know, I've been trying to think like, what's the best landing spot for Giannis? It would be pretty wild if you had three major European players, Luca, Porzingis, and Giannis all on the same team, and now you've got basically a European big three. Like, could you imagine that? Yeah, that'd and be I awesome. They actually, they, do they fit together better than most people think, right? I mean, the, the tricky part is Giannis would need to give up a lot of the ball handling, right? And you turn him into a little bit more of a role guy in a pick and roll with Luca. You'd have, you know, Porzingis as a floor spacer. On defense, Porzingis would play the five. He would just sort of drop into the paint, kind of like Lopez does for Milwaukee. Giannis would be free to just be a crazy help defender all over the court. And then offensively, uh, when Luka's off the court, you could put the ball back into Giannis's hands and let him do a little bit more that way. I mean, it would require some sacrifices for sure, especially from Porzingis. I mean, he would wind up being sort of in that Bosch role. And I think Giannis would actually kind of hop into a Dwayne Wade role a little bit. Um that team could win an awful lot of games and they could really, I mean, they could, they could win multiple championships if they decided to put it together like that. So I'm not saying that I'm rooting for that, but I do think that that's one of the most mind blowing possible destinations for Giannis. If you compare that to some of the other ones that are out there, I mean, if I were him, I wouldn't go to golden state. I think that they're just, you know, going towards the sunset stage of that group. And, you know, I I think he should try to, you know, be surrounded by younger and, and more upcoming talent. Um, I could see him being a real personality fit in Miami for sure. I think Miami's got some real positive momentum building right now with, with their current group. And they've got some really nice young pieces they could throw into trades or, uh, you know, just have on lower salaries to kind of make things a little bit easier. So you know, those are a couple of the teams that I'm watching for sure. But, uh, you know, it always helps with the warm weather markets too. Don't we always come back to California, Texas, and Florida? I mean, it feels like that's the uh, the story every single time. Yeah, I mean, for sure. They're, you know, with Miami too, no state income tax. Um, my thing is, I don't know if he would go to the Heat because we all just saw what happened to Kevin Durant when he went to the team that eliminated him in the postseason. He got so much crap for it. You know, do you think other players take note of that and they're thinking, okay, well, I mean, if, if Giannis goes to Miami, he has to understand that he's going to get lit up. Um, you know, obviously it wouldn't be this offseason unless he demanded a trade or something like that. So there'd be some separation from it. But if the perception is that you went, you know, went and joined the team that was your biggest competitor and knocking you out of the playoffs, you know, do you think players after seeing what Kevin Durant went through are maybe hesitant to do that a bit? Well, you, you wouldn't want to do it this summer because that's sort of when you get into that Kevin Durant thing. But if a whole nother year passes and maybe somebody else knocks you out next year, um, does it become a little bit more palatable? I think it, it's probably uh, you know possible to to make that kind of a thing happen. I think big picture Giannis would like to stay in Milwaukee, right? I think that he's so loyal; it's just kind of ingrained in him. 
he realizes that he was just kind of like completely off the radar when he first came to the NBA. I think he gives that organization a lot of credit for turning him into the player that he is and kind of molding his development and giving him the basketball a couple of years ago as the point guard and just kind of turning him loose. I don't think he takes any of that stuff for granted. So I think that he's almost in the situation where he's looking for reasons to stay. Um, But ultimately, like that ownership group has to step up and, and prove that they can put together a championship type team around him. And I think Mike Budholzer's got to step up and prove that he's a championship quality coach, right? I mean, he's had a lot of shortcomings in the postseason. I thought he got completely outcoached by Spolstra. And that goes back to this idea of comparing cultures, right? If you're Giannis and you're seeing how Miami handles the pressure and how well Spolstra is prepared for the playoffs and, and how their role players all step up, and you look at your roster and you're seeing you know, a lot of burden on your own shoulders, Mike Budholzer getting completely outcoached and, and a lot of your role guys kind of falling by the wayside, I think it's hard not to make those kinds of comparisons. And it would certainly be if I was in his situation, uh, that those kinds of things would be on my mind. Yeah, and it certainly sounds like the culture matters to him. I mean, the teams that we're hearing, Miami, which ha- it's, it's known for their culture. Pat Riley's done an amazing job of building that. Spolster's a huge part of that. You know, they they have a very specific culture. Um, you know, everyone works hard. I did an article about it a few years ago for Hoopsype where basically they talked about just they get you in the best shape of your life. The conditioning is crazy. They have different sayings like no fake gym rats and, and basically said like, <laughs> don't show up just to show the coaches that you're in the gym, but don't actually put work in. We're not about that. Actually put in the work and try to improve and drop weight. And obviously, you know, they're, they're kind of famous for that. Uh, draft prospects go there and puke their brains out. And, uh, that's kind of what they're known for. And then you have Toronto where Masai's done an incredible job and, you know, Nick Nurse looks like a fantastic coach and this organization has done a great job of identifying talent and you know being able to develop their their own players that they draft and bring in and then golden states but the other one that's kind of been mentioned and we all know about their culture and how it's attracted stars in the past so it seems like culture is a huge factor in this for him whereas you know for some players it's market size or you know just who they can team up with uh you know, I think like Wide Leonard, for example, he doesn't go to the Clippers if he doesn't get a chance to play with Paul George. So I think for him, culture and kind of the organization's approach and philosophy, See, I mean, this is me just kind of inferring that based on his options, but it seems like that's very important to him. Yeah, we should be clear. I mean, he's not putting out a list and he's not saying, hey, these are the places. This is just sort of people connecting dots True. around him. And, and that, that part's tricky because um, I think ultimately, if you say like, what are Giannis's core values? Loyalty is super high on the list. You'll notice that, um, you know, he's made many comments about how he wants to raise his family in Milwaukee. And, um, you know, even during the, the protest this summer, he kind of repeated that. So I think that, you know, th- those are the kinds of things he value. But ultimately, it's the same, you know, uh, predicament faced by every superstar level guy. You can want to be valuable uh, and, and loyal to your organization the whole way through. But ultimately, like the pressure ramps up when you get into your mid to late 20s. If you haven't won, that starts to define you, and you've got to find a path uh, to a title. And I think ultimately <clears throat> that's one of Giannis's biggest values too. I don't think he wants to go and just be as famous as possible. I don't think he wants to be in Space Jam 3. In fact, he turned down a role in Space Jam 2, right? Um, I think that it's not the fame, it's not the money. For him, it's it's winning and it's the loyalty and, and trying to do it his way. 
And, you know, now it's just the pressure really is on the Bucks to prove that they can step up and, and be his partner on that. And, and we'll see how they do here over the next 12 months. No, absolutely. I, I think, like you said, he wants to be in Milwaukee. He's made comments about that, talked about raising his family there. He's, you know, said that he doesn't care about markets and doesn't feel like he'd even be comfortable if he were to go play in a large market. So, you know, it's really on Milwaukee, like you said, to spend the money, put the right pieces you know, around it, him, all that. What's funny, Alex, is like I, I really believe him on that stuff because, look, I mean, you, you see what he wears every single game when he shows up. It's just a Nike tech fleece uh, suit every single game, right? He's like the most low-key guy. He's not wearing Versace and, and uh, you know, Gucci and all that. He's just wearing Nike tech fleece. You know, a lot of these guys are out here. They brought, you know, 15, 20 different pairs of sneakers. You know, P.J. Tucker probably had 200 pairs of sneakers, right? As far as I could tell, Giannis had like one pair of off-court sneakers for the entire time he was in the bubble. There was, you know, gray Jordan 10s, right? I mean, he wore them practically after every single game. And so he's just different. Like, I just don't think he's as flashy or as image conscious as a lot of his fellow superstar guys are. And I think it makes sense because, remember, he was never that number one prospect coming up through AAU, always getting the attention, right? I mean, he was in the Greek third division for like his teenage years. And then now here he is like, out of nowhere, just boom, dropped into the NBA. And he starts as a role player. He doesn't start as a number one pick who has the ball in his hands, right? So if you compare and contrast like what his path to superstardom was like compared to Kevin Durant or compared to LeBron James, it's night and day. It's totally different. And so I do think it's a little bit tricky to to hold him to those guys and say, oh, he's just going to do whatever those guys do. Uh, you know, I, I don't buy that because I, I do think he's a little bit of a different guy. No, that's a great point. I, I always think that doesn't get talked about enough. The guy's journey to the NBA, like you look at Damian Lillard, who was at Weber State. And I remember I interviewed him when he was at Weber State. I think it was his sophomore year or right when his sophomore year ended after he had his injury in college. And he was being projected through Draft Express as like, you know, 55th pick in the draft or something like that. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, the guys that kind of weren't AAU stars and I mean I can't imagine what it's like for an Andrew Wiggins or a Jabari Parker or a Zion Williamson to be famous from the time you're like 13 14 years old but yeah I mean I think there is something to be said for the guys that kind of had a chance to mature and grow up a bit and then found that fame later on in life um you know Giannis was obviously young when he was drafted and everything but it's a different journey and that I think that definitely does impact guys you look at like someone like Kawhi Leonard who was kind of the same you know he wasn't a huge uh prospect he was at san diego state he kind of slips in the draft like I, I definitely think that doesn't get discussed enough these guys journeys and how they got to you know the point that they're at and, and how that impacts them and you know change the way that they kind of view the world and do things a bit so i think it's a great point no, it's a, no i agree completely lillard's another awesome example here because remember like he wanted to go to weber state because they were the first ones to offer him right it's loyalty so it's like yeah loyal yeah, the loyalty factor kicks in, and the same deal in Portland. Like he always says, I don't want to leave Portland. I don't want to go to the Lakers. I don't want to go anywhere else because Portland was the team that took a chance on him, number six, when there were still questions about, hey, is this guy going to be able? You know, is he is he too old? I think was one of the biggest questions. You know, like what's his ceiling, right? Yeah. And Portland invested everything in him, gave him like three max contracts back to back to back, and so you'll never hear a peep out of him, anything negative towards the Blazers or ownership or, or the front office or anything for those reasons. I think Giannis, if you're going to compare him to almost any other superstar level player, I think Lillard's actually the best comparison. So I'm glad you, you brought that up because 
they are more similar in how they got to the NBA than a lot of these other guys. Yeah, Lillard, actually, I did an article on this. He had different offers from other high schools, too. You know, basically, when he was in high school, I think there were other AAU teams and other high school teams that were trying to get him to leave and basically saying, hey, you're not getting a ton of attention. Come join us. And uh, yeah, Oakland High School, I'm pulling it up right now. He was at Oakland High School and... uh he wasn't, you know, he had a lot of other people trying to to bring him on board and, you know, recruit him away, but his loyalty stems back even when he was in high school. So yeah, I think the loyalty for those guys, it, it definitely, uh, it's a little bit different. You know, they're not constantly looking and changing teams. And you see that in AAU too. Some of the guys that are, you know, super young and, and when they kind of find fame and, you know, everyone in their life is telling them they're the man and things like that, you know, we see them jump around and sometimes they've played on three, four AAU teams. So they're already jumping around and changing things and teaming up with other guys. So I think that does impact how these guys approach some of these big decisions. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, quickly here, I want to talk to you about some of the, you know, the remaining teams that are in the bubble. Uh, you wrote a great piece in your newsletter about the Boston Celtics and how well they're playing. They've looked excellent. They've done it without Gordon Hayward for the most part, who's obviously an important piece for them. What's impressed you most about this Celtics team? And do you think they can advance to the NBA Finals? What impresses two things. First of all, uh, their lack of mistakes on defense. Just They're just on point, right? They They don't beat themselves. And that's so important, especially at this stage, right? They don't have a Kawhi Leonard, LeBron type guy who's been there before. So they have to give themselves every single possible chance to win these games, right? And um, that's how they got it out game seven. I mean, look at the small plays they made. The Marcus Smart, incredible chase down block in the final minute. Jason Tatum, your your biggest star, gets an offensive rebound on a free throw miss and gets fouled and kind of ices the game away with that. I mean, those are pure hustle plays, high IQ basketball plays. And then, of course, great physical plays, too. Uh, but it really starts with just the attention to detail, the locked in, the focus. You know, give Brad Stevens a lot of credit for their culture, uh, but also give credit to these younger guys for buying into it, right? I mean, it's very easy for someone like Tatum to start believing his own hype and to to maybe lax off a little bit on defense, to lighten up, to get more into the the Kobe Bryant, you know, chucking mode. And I want to be a, a superstar level guy and get my scoring number up. And that hasn't been his approach at all. I mean, he is so, um, you know, play to play. His defensive intensity is incredible. It reminds me of like a younger Paul George or some of those other elite perimeter defenders. You know, he's not quite as physical as a Kawhi Leonard, uh, but he's a really, really good player both sides of the basketball. So that impresses me. The other thing on offense is just the um, the willingness to have balance. You know, you look on, on paper, you might say, well, you've got Jalen Brown, who's young and up and coming. You've got Tatum, who's young and up and coming. And then you've got Kemba, who's never really won in the playoffs before and is trying to kind of rewrite his reputation a little bit. You throw those guys onto the same team, that could lead to some butting of heads or some, you know, who's exactly number one on the uh, on the on the pecking order? Who's number two? Who's number three? There might be some fights over the basketball. We saw that last year with Kyrie Irving. They never got that mix right. Nobody knew uh, when to count on him exactly how he wanted to empower his teammates and all that stuff. But these guys don't really seem to care who gets the numbers on any given night. Um, they keep the ball moving. They spread around the scoring. If Kemba happens to have an off night, well, they try to bring him back in a little bit more the next night. Uh, Tatum, you know, if Brown's feeling it, maybe he gets 19 shots in the first half like he did the other night, right? I mean, you, you just never know um, exactly where they're going to beat you. And that could be very difficult for uh, you know a defense to keep up with because there's just threats at almost every single position. I mean, even a guy like Daniel Tice, who's a real unheralded, just kind of a hardworking, you know, versatile big man, even he gets an opportunity to touch the basketball late in game six when uh, Toronto goes small, right? And he's just getting dunk after dunk after dunk after dunk over the top. 
Um, so I just love their unselfishness on offense and their commitment on defense. And, you know, to me, I'm going to pick them over the heat in six. I think it's going to be a tight series. I pretty much agree with everyone on that. Uh, I just like uh, Boston's wings slightly more than Miami's wings. And I think, uh, you know, the biggest question to me is is the Celtics depth. If they can get Hayward back, that would be helpful to have some just somebody else they could plug in there to the second unit minutes. Um, but their best five is really good. They're well balanced. Um, they match up, you know, quite well with the Miami Heat. And I, they just think they're they're a team on the rise right now. Yeah, I'm going Miami in seven, but it wouldn't surprise me if Boston advanced. Uh, I, I like this Miami team. I think they're, they just have so much momentum right now and they're playing great basketball. But I do worry, you know, you look at some of the guys are shooting lights out. You have someone like Jay Crowder who I, I can't imagine he'll be able to continue shooting this way. So I do have some concerns there, but I'm going Miami in seven. Last question for you. We have game seven tonight between the Denver Nuggets and the LA Clippers. This Denver team is just super resilient. We saw it against the Utah Jazz coming back down from three one. Obviously, they have all the momentum right now being able to force this game seven. Who do you think wins tonight? And then who do you have coming out of the West? I'll say this. It better be the Clippers winning tonight because nobody has barked louder than the LA Clippers in the bubble. You go back to the Damian Lillard incident, then you've got the Luka Doncic incident. Then you have Patrick Beverly going after Nikola Jokic in this series. You look at their bench behavior in terms of how they're razzing guys and you know talking trash and making noise during free throws and all that stuff. Nobody has been barking more than the Clippers, and it's time for them to step up and show who they are, right? And they're supposed to be this championship-level team. Championship teams do not blow 3-1 leads. And, you know, they're vulnerable right now, for sure. Denver has been a perfect foil for them, never giving up, cranking up its offense in the second half, taking them by surprise. And in some cases, like game six, I mean, almost running them out of the building in that second half. I mean, they really kind of almost embarrassed them in that third and fourth quarter. You know, I picked the Clippers to win the whole title before the season, so I'll pick the Clippers in game seven, but I do not feel very good about it. I'm sure their coaches are not feeling very good about their current situation. The pressure is all on the Clippers, just like Nikola Jokic said after game six, for sure. And I think ultimately right now, the the real title favorite is the Lakers. Uh, I think they had a better second round than any team. LeBron is peaking at the right moment. All of their major early questions in the bubble about their lack of shooting, their questionable depth. I mean, all of those have now started to, to get some answers. Guys like Rondo and Markeith Morris and even Alex Caruso, they're all stepping up and contributing against the Houston Rockets. And their defense has been phenomenal. And I'm just not sure, you know, who's left, who's going to be able to stop this version of LeBron. If the Clippers had showed better unity as a team, and they were getting, you know, better minutes from all their guys, whether it's, um, you know, Lou Williams, Montrezl Harrell, you know, maybe I would pick them. But I think it's, uh, I think the, the Lakers have the inside track right now. Yeah, I think everyone throughout the regular season, there were times where we were saying, okay, well, come playoff time, the Clippers are going to have that unity and they're going to flip that switch and it's going to be crazy. And I, I, you know, we haven't seen it, obviously. I think, I think they win this game against Denver in advance and then we'll get the Clippers Lakers matchup that we've all been talking about all season long. And I have the Lakers winning that. I had the Lakers as my championship pick before the playoffs started. I like their championship experience. You know, they have six players and four of their coaches who have won rings. Uh, three of their players have won multiple rings. I think that stuff matters, especially in a year like this where everything's so crazy. I think this is the year it's where, you know, leadership and that 
you know, experience, knowing what it takes to get to, you know, to get it done comes in handy. Now you could argue this year's totally different. So they really don't know what it takes because the journey is completely different. It's a totally different path to a championship. But I just think that that championship experience does matter. Um, especially in these big moments. Uh, so, and the Clippers do have it too. You know, we see Kawhi, but they have less of it clearly. So I have the Lakers winning it all, but I think the Clippers will win tonight in advance past Denver. But, uh, I just hope we have a great game. I, I hope it goes to overtime. That would be amazing. I know I feel bad saying that because you're there and that's like one of those <laughs> things you never say when you're talking to a media member who's at a game because it means you're you know working late but for the fans at home i hope it goes to overtime i'm sorry ben no no i'm with you on that i mean that remember that double overtime game we got between toronto and boston oh. like nobody was complaining about that yeah i mean that was a pretty darn late night too but i'll uh I'll take that anytime if we're getting that kind of level of back and forth and, you know, it's like a heavyweight fight. Who's going to be the last guy standing? So, um, yeah, no, I, I think uh, we should get a good one. The only thing I worry about is are these guys a little bit gassed, you know, and can Denver pull it off one more time? I think that's the biggest open question because they've been this uh, the cardiac kids, right, with these crazy comebacks. Do they have one more left in the tank? We'll see. But, uh, look, I mean, the Clippers have had issues with pressure their entire uh, franchise history, right? I mean, there's a reason why they've never made the conference finals in 50 years. Uh, it's been, even, you know, under Doc Rivers, you know, dating back before the Kawhi Leonard and Paul George tenure, there's been, you know, pressure. And, and some of those guys were still there, you know, at that point. So uh, it's going to be a real rallying moment. If they're able to do it, I think it's going to be a, just a gigantic sigh of relief. But the stat that I just want to end on, Alex, the Lakers are going to open the Western Conference finals game one on Friday. In the 24 days before that, they will have only played six games because they took care of their two playoff opponents so quickly and because of the NBA shutdown. So, you know, we're talking about rest and recovery time and everything else like that. That is a monster advantage for the Los Angeles Lakers to have only played six games in 24 days before the conference finals. They couldn't have asked for almost anything better than that. Yeah, I read that stat in your NBA post-up newsletter. You wrote about LeBron James and his path to this title. And yeah, I mean, that's incredible. I was shocked when I read it. That's insane to think about, you know, but with the boycott uh, and just the timing of everything, they've really had, you know, a lot of rest and a lot of days off. So that is a huge factor for sure. Um, And by the way, NBA post-up newsletter, make sure you guys all read it. It's through the Washington Post. It's a great newsletter. Uh, The Greatest of All Talk podcast is fantastic. Check it out at greatestofalltalk.com. And then Bubble Ball coming out May 2021. Make sure you guys buy that book. You can pre-order it, I'm sure, eventually. And then follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Golliver. Ben, thanks so much for doing this, buddy. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for the plugs. And and they can pre-order it, by the way. I've got the Amazon link is in my Twitter profile, and you can sign up for that newsletter on my Twitter profile, too. So it's a one-stop shop for all your needs. Awesome. I'm excited to read it, man. I think it's going to be great. I'm so excited. And yeah, make sure you guys check out the podcast and check out Ben's articles. And if you want to hear more episodes of this podcast, check us out on Spotify, Audio Boom, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, thanks for listening. Today's episode is sponsored by greensupply.com. With everything going on in the world, it's more important than ever to stay safe. At greensupply.com, you can purchase masks, hand sanitizer, and other important health and wellness products, which are all in stock with same-day shipping. Best of all, listeners get 10% off their order when you use the promo code ALEX at checkout. That's A-L-E-X for 10% off your order. They have KN95 masks, cloth masks, hand sanitizer, and other supplies like forehead thermometers and UV boxes. Visit greensupply.com today. That's greensupply.com.